From NPR News in Washington, this is Weekend Edition. I'm Sarah McCammon. This hour, a talented but young U.S. soccer team faces the Netherlands in the World Cup. We'll check in with NPR's Tom Goldman, who's there. Also, a new film turns the camera on how two epidemics touched the life of one artist and activist and how she fought back. And more than three decades of gun violence in the U.S., a new report pulls together the data and reaches several sobering conclusions. A 22-fold increase among black men versus white men. That's a huge difference. And in the Amazon, a big fish is making a comeback. Those stories, but first the news. It's Saturday, December 3rd, 2022. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden's signature on legislation averting a rail strike ends nearly three years of bargaining between railroads and unions. Union lost on one major issue. But Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports they want a better contract overall. The contract that Congress and the president have imposed on railroads and unions was hammered out two months ago. Union leaders signed off on it then, but rank-and-file workers and one-third of the unions voted it down. Workers are angry about the way railroads have treated them lately. An efficiency push over the last few years has cut staff by 30 percent and helped drive profits to record levels. But many railroaders say harsh work rules have kept them on call for weeks on end and penalized them for taking time off sick. They were holding out for more paid sick days. The contract they got will boost wages by 24 percent and give them an extra paid day off. Frank Morris, NPR News. One of the last congressional races left over from the midterm elections has been decided, according to an AP race call last night. Republican John Torte has defeated Democrat Adam Gray in a new House district representing California's Central Valley. Early voting in Georgia's Senate runoff has wrapped up. State election officials say more than 1.8 million people cast ballots ahead of Tuesday's runoff between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker. Sam Greenglass is with member station WABE. He says the early vote total sets several single-day records. The Secretary of State's office says people's willingness to wait shows that voters are really enthusiastic. But Georgia has a shorter runoff timeline now, and that seems to be affecting when and also how people vote. Uh, Brigitte Peck and her daughter Sophie waited two hours to vote on Saturday. Peck says her daughter's absentee ballot it hadn't arrived by the time she was getting ready to go back to school in Ohio after Thanksgiving, so they went in person instead. The public health emergency for monkeypox, now known as MPOX, officially winding down. NPR's Ping Huang reports on the decision from federal health authorities. HHS Secretary Javier Becerra does not expect to renew the public health emergency for MPOX once it expires at the end of January. In a statement, Becerra cited the low number of current cases. In the past two weeks, fewer than 20 new cases have been found each day nationwide. Even after the emergency order expires, the government is pledging to keep a close eye on case numbers and to encourage people at risk to get free vaccines. The U.S. outbreak is part of a larger global outbreak of the disease, which spread quickly through Europe and the U.S. the spring and summer, primarily in the sexual networks of men who have sex with men. Experts credit vaccines and behavioral changes for bringing the virus under control, which has infected nearly 30,000 people in the U.S. and led to 19 deaths. Ping Huang, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Some Massachusetts environmentalists are expressing hope that the Prince and Princess of Wales Boston visit with a focus on the environment will turn attention to climate solutions rather than doom and gloom. WBUR's Kathleen Masterson has the story from last night's Earthshot Awards, where international and local green glitterati joined star-studded presenters. Some call it the Oscars of the environmental movement. Boston's chief of environment, Mariama White-Hammond, says the city was a natural fit to host a global environmental prize. We're excited to host them, and I think they chose us because we kind of embody the sense of climate urgency that uh, the Earthside Prize is really all about. Jean-Luc Parit is with the North American Indian Center of Boston. He says he was thrilled to see an ocean restoration project by a group of indigenous women in Australia win one of the awards. This was like the Super Bowl for Boston, but then it was like the World Cup for indigenous peoples as well. So the native row was all the way live cheering for the indigenous women in Queensland, Australia. Prizes went to solutions to help ensure clean air, restore nature, and heal our oceans. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Kathleen Masterson. Investigators are looking into the cause of a small plane crash in Falmouth that injured two people. Police say both occupants are being treated for life-threatening injuries after their aircraft went down yesterday afternoon at the Falmouth Air Park. Boston's Enchanted Trolley Tour kicks off today. Mayor Michelle Wu will visit neighborhoods across the city today and tomorrow, lighting holiday trees along the way. The tour starts at Hastings Lot at 11 this morning. Today's stops include Mattapan, Jamaica Plain, Mission Hill, the South End, and Brighton. It is 51 degrees in Boston. Breezy today, some showers and highs in the upper 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Landry and Arcari Rugs and Carpeting since 1938. With thousands of new and antique rugs, Boston, Salem, Framingham, and online at LandryandArcari.com. The Jewish Arts Collaborative with Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, an innovative celebration at the Museum of Fine Arts, December 15th, jartsboston.org. And the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about making a modest contribution to create stories and conversations that make your world bigger. Hi, it's Robin Young. Give $10 or $15 a month an ongoing contribution, which will help sustain WBUR for everyone who listens. Please give now at WBUR.org. And thank you. When you give now at WBUR.org, you can also call 1-800-909-9287. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. With me in the studio is Carrie Young, and we are urging you, as you listen to Weekend Edition Saturday, to make a contribution, make a monthly commitment to your listening enjoyment here at WBUR. This is our last fundraiser for the year. So just Think about how often, uh, you know, this time of day, it's Saturday morning, wiping the sleep out of your eyes, maybe. You turn to WBUR. We are here for you uh, on the radio. We're 
here at WBUR.org. There are times that you uh, appreciate what WBUR has to offer at City Space. What this means to you, think about that and make a contribution. 1-800-909-9287. Yeah, Sharon, I like what you just said about like what WBUR means to you and what it does for you on the weekends. I know weekend listening, I was just telling my boyfriend that weekend listening is my favorite time on mm. WBUR because you get programs like the hour before this, we had the TED Radio Hour. You get some really in-depth conversations with some, uh, you know, really thought-provoking uh, folks. And that kind of thing is just, it's its a nice way to carry me through the weekend morning. Let's take a listen, though, too, to some of our other listeners as to the reasons why they listen to WBUR. I don't know how many radio stations keep you in the driveway so that you can listen to the end of whatever the story is because it's fascinating and because you're really learning something from it. And WBUR definitely does that. You feel like you've actually grasped the meaning behind what you're listening to and why something's happening. They sort of unpack an issue and they get people from industry, from policy, from the research world to speak on whatever the topic is. And so you get a well-rounded look at whatever the issue is. WBUR allows for the gray area, what it would look like if there wasn't a right answer or if there are many right answers. For all the reasons you listen, give monthly at WBUR.org. And once again, the number you can call is 1-800-909-9287 or give online at WBUR.org. And if you help us get to our goal uh, during this fundraiser, we would be happy to send you a thank you gift with your gift of $15, we'll send you a WBUR hat. This is a new iteration of a uh, WBUR winter hat, and um, it's pretty amazing. It's it's got it's got the pom pom on the top. It's warm. If you're like me and you wear hats sort of all the time from fall, winter into spring, uh, then you can advertise your support of WBUR by contributing. If you can make that $15 a month, that monthly commitment to WBUR helps keep WBUR thriving. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Yeah, and this hat, Sharon, uh, I will mention or add on that I love that it's like a really thick hat. Like, it'll take you through the Boston winter really, really well. This is someone who's not used to Boston winters, so I feel good about about this hat, too. Uh, We also, there's a WBUR sweatshirt as well. Um, That is $20 a month. Uh, You can get that as our thank you gift. But really, any kind of contribution that fits into your budget, we really appreciate. It really helps us maintain our programming here at WBUR. Keep it strong and keep it reliable for years to come. So you can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you so much for listening. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Scott Simon. Iowa's first-in-the-nation status could be coming to an end. 
This week, President Joe Biden suggested South Carolina take the lead in the, president, the Democrats' presidential nomination contest, and his proposal seems to be getting serious consideration as well as some blowback. Meanwhile, some Republican support for same-sex marriage and new problems for former President Donald Trump. Joining us as he does most Saturdays is NPR's Ron Elving. Good morning, Ron. Good to be with you, Sarah. So let's start with Iowa, a place we both know well. Ron, for the past 50 years, its voters have had first crack at the candidates. What is behind the desire to change that? Several issues, really. Uh, number one, the outsized role that Iowa's defined for itself is demographically at odds with the Democratic Party's base. That base is increasingly found in urban areas and in communities of color. Iowa's a largely rural state that's roughly 90 percent white. Second, super early Iowa events have not been primaries, but party-run caucuses. And both parties have had trouble managing those caucuses in recent years. And that's led to some confusion about who won and lots of bad feelings. And we should add that President Biden has little love for the Iowa caucuses, having finished no better than fourth there in 2020 and back in 2008. There is that. How likely is this change to happen, though, Ron? And, and what does it mean for the other states that currently follow Iowa? This was a vote by a key committee. It still has to get through the full Democratic National Committee. And then it needs to withstand what will be a furious onslaught from backers of Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, which now shares a date with Nevada in the new lineup. You know, this is an industry in some of these states, and they're going to fight hard to stay in the limelight so it's a battle joined, not a battle won. In the Senate this week, there was a vote 61 to 36 to protect same-sex marriages and interracial marriage. Those are two issues that seem settled after separate Supreme Court rulings. The Respect for Marriage Act now heads to the House. Was this vote a big surprise for you, Ron? Yes, in the long term, no. In the short term, there has been a growing coalition in both parties that favors this point of view, same-sex marriage. Uh, the Supreme Court, of course, could reverse some of the past decisions it has made in this area, just as it did with respect to abortion. You know, I was here in Washington when Congress passed what was called the Defense of Marriage Act 26 years ago. That was an anti-same-sex marriage bill, and it was supported at the time by President Bill Clinton and considered essential to his reelection that year. And yet here we are, a generation later, watching 12 Republican senators cross the aisle to join the Democrats and protect people's right to marry the person they love. It's proof the change can happen. Now, this week also brought a series of rebukes aimed at former President Trump. Tell us first about the legal ones, if you would. You know, the, the president has uh, he's had uh, what have to be called a series of setbacks, particularly in the appeals court in Atlanta this past week, where three judges, uh, two of whom Trump had appointed, said that the special master that was appointed by a friendly Trump judge down in Florida was just a bad call and that that uh, should just be dismissed. Also this week, uh, Stuart Rhodes of the Oath Keepers was found guilty of seditious conspiracy for his role in the January 6th riot, storming the Capitol, disrupting the Congress. Uh, that could be read as yet another sign of the law closing in on the former president. And then there were rebukes from Republicans over Trump's dinner last week with Yee, formerly known as Kanye West, and the white nationalist Nick Fuentes. What stands out to you about the pushback from members of Trump's own party over this dinner? I'm struck by the slow rollout of these responses. There were a few Republicans who were on it from the jump. Others came along day by day, 
It took a full week before the House and Senate Republican leaders, Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, stepped out and condemned these dinner guests. And still to this day, Trump has not denounced or repudiated them. He simply claims he did not know who they were. That is NPR's Ron Elving. Thanks so much, Ron. Thank you, Sarah. The FIFA World Cup continues in Qatar after a thrilling end to the group stage with 16 teams still in the running. The U.S. is set to face the powerhouse Dutch team today. NPR's sports correspondent Tom Goldman is in Doha covering the World Cup and joins us now. Welcome. Hi, Sarah. Set the stage for us, Tom. A talented but very young U.S. team faces the Netherlands this morning. What should we expect? Well, I'm going to predict a close, tense, exciting match. Um, The U.S. is the second youngest team in this World Cup, but it's played with great poise and played really good defense, holding three opponents in the group stage to a total of one goal. The Americans are still lacking go-to scorers. This has been a weakness, although the good news on the scoring and playmaking front, forward Christian Pulisic has been cleared to play. He suffered a pelvic contusion as he scored that dramatic winning goal against Iran earlier this week. So what should we know about the other team, about the Americans' opponents today? The Netherlands are ranked eighth in the world, a country with a great soccer history, World Cup runners-up in 2010, third place in 2014. But despite that history, the team is young. It failed to qualify for the last World Cup, like the U.S. And there's talk that it's vulnerable because even though it won its group in the group stage here, it underperformed. Maybe. But the U.S. should not relax. The Netherlands haven't lost in their last 10 World Cup matches. A very talented team with their 23-year-old breakout star, Cody Gakpo. He's 6'4". That's really big in soccer. It's big anywhere. Yeah, really. And he scored three goals in three matches. The Dutch also have one of the best defenders in the world, Virgil van Dijk. And talk about big Sarah, or at least tall goalkeeper Andreas Nopert is 6'8". That's a big wall to get over or around. So the Dutch uh, are a good team, a reason why they're favored today. So explain this to us. How does this next knockout stage work? The best way to explain for an American audience, it's just like March Madness, win or go home. No more draws. If there is a tie at the end of regulation, games can go 30 minutes of extra time and even longer with penalty kicks to decide a winner. A U.S. coach, Greg Berhalter, calls it a second tournament, requiring different planning, different styles of play and strategy. There won't be as much conservative hanging back because you got to win. And half of the teams that started have already been eliminated. So that final elimination process is creating quite a week, it seems. An absolutely exhilarating and heartbreaking last week, depending on who you're rooting for. Every team played its final group stage match, and practically every one of those matches had significance as far as determining who goes on and who's out. Teams were scrambling to score more goals to increase their goal differential, one of the possible criteria for deciding who advances. And so fans at games were checking their phones to see how other matches were going that might have an impact on the match in front of them. TVs were showing split-screen action, two games at once. Fans of Poland, Japan, South Korea love that craziness because their teams prevailed. Fans of Mexico, Germany, and Uruguay, not so much. Their teams were eliminated. Before we let you go, I want to talk about a historic moment that took place on Thursday in the match between Germany and Costa Rica, but not because of anything to do with the results, right? Yeah, that's right. Stephanie Frappa of France became the first female referee in a men's World Cup game. And it was also the first ever all-female refereeing trio. 
Female assistant refs from Brazil and Mexico also were on the field. Now, it wasn't lost on people that this moment happened in Qatar, a conservative country where some women aren't allowed to live fully independent lives, uh, with some male guardianship laws in place requiring a woman to get permission to work in certain fields or travel abroad if they're under the age of 25. So having the first female referee, a figure of power and authority in a men's World Cup match, that's meaningful. NPR's Tom Goldman, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. For the first time in almost 50 years, a French head of state visited New Orleans this week. Louisiana is a former French colony, and the state welcomed President Emmanuel Macron. Carly Berlin from member station WWNO in New Orleans reports. Live music poured into the streets as President Macron arrived in New Orleans. First stop for the French president, the French Quarter. Crowds gathered as he toured the city's historic district. Thibault Boyer is a French citizen, an exchange student who happens to be spending the semester in New Orleans. Boyer said he was pleased to see his president mingling with the crowd. And he just took the time to speak to us, to give interest in what we were saying to him, so it was very unexpected, but for the good way. In his speech, Macron remarked on what he called the unique history of New Orleans. America, France, and Africa are all represented here, he said. He's speaking here via an interpreter. It is the history of men and women of all colors that did not speak the same language, that did not have the same religion, the same faith but who, in the end, got together for one single reason. That reason, Macron said, was to build a common future. Earlier in the day, he met with Louisiana's governor. The two pledged to abide by a climate change agreement. It would appoint a kind of climate change ambassador from France to come to the state. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards said it could open up an economic relationship as well. We'll also look for opportunities for Louisiana companies to directly engage in France. Macron had several other meetings, including a brief and mysterious conversation with Elon Musk. The meeting with the billionaire Twitter owner was not previously scheduled. Macron said in a tweet the two had a, quote, clear and honest discussion about topics including the environment and online content moderation. At the end of the night, Macron finished his speech with a famous New Orleans saying, Long live France, long live Louisiana, and let the good times roll. For NPR News, I'm Carly Berlin. You're listening to NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And the Holiday Pops, helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops. Now through December 24th, holidaypops.org. 
My name's Simone Rios. I'm a reporter at WBUR. Apparently, around the 19th century and going forward into the 20th century, this new sort of deed restriction started to appear. Somebody would sell a piece of land and include in the deed a restriction that only certain people could live there. One of the racist deed restrictions that we uncovered was in Wilmington. The deed prohibited anybody from Ireland from inhabiting this plot of land. So I was able to find the house and found the couple. They were home. And Mary Tazone Kaiser was blown away. It's disgusting. I mean, to like discriminate against anybody so they can't own land for whatever reason or live in a, live in a house for whatever reason. This kind of reporting matters to our listeners. It matters to our station. Go to WBUR.org and sign up to become a monthly contributor. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody, and we know that you value the reporting of Simone Rios here on WBUR uh, and of my studio mate this morning, Carrie Young, our senior education reporter. This matters to you. This is independent journalism. And the way that this journalism thrives here on WBUR is for you to support it. Uh, This is our last fundraiser this year. We're asking you to think about how often you have turned to WBUR throughout 2022 on the radio, on our website, at City Space. And we're asking you to please make a meaningful contribution because that is how WBUR will continue to be strong in the new year. Here's how you make a contribution. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Yeah, I mean, listening to Simone Rios' testimonial there really made me think about our process here in the newsroom. Uh, you know, what you hear on the air it, for four minutes, maybe eight, if we, uh, you know, have a, a detailed enough story, mm-hmm. is the end product of many, many phone calls, edits back and forth, making sure it makes sense. Uh, you know, there's there's so much work, so many people involved in bringing you what you uh, rely on, what you enjoy. It might not always be an investigative, you know, hard news story, but still, there's a lot of research that goes into the work we do here. So please consider supporting that. Um, You can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Hi, I'm WBUR environmental reporter Miriam Wasser. So Sam Woodman is a young climate activist And she told the story of what happened during the big nor'easter of 2018 when the street she lived on in Revere just flooded really severely. You can see the ocean from Pearl Avenue, so it's really pretty. It's kind of like this quintessential small town street, even though it's in the middle of Revere. And I remember Sam pointing to this one spot that was maybe 15 feet away from her house, and she said, this is where the water comes up to. This is where we all know that if there's a storm coming, we do not park our cars below this point. So when the nor'easter hit, nobody parked there. Everybody parked much farther up the street, but the waters came up in a way that they had never seen before. And that's how they all got in trouble. There was a a neighbor across the street who had been there for decades. And She told me a story about what happened during the storm, that the water came up into their backyard. They're used to the backyard flooding, right? But when the big storm came, 
the water just came pouring into their basement. We evacuated. We actually evacuated. The water was up to my husband in the middle of his chest in the basement. But I was just really touched by how tight-knit this community was and how attached everyone was to this specific street. This is a working class neighborhood and climate change is going to disproportionately affect those who can least afford to protect themselves. And this story tells us that. We hear so much about climate change and sea level rise in Massachusetts. And here's a story of where it's, it's impacting people. These are the stories that we need to hear and these are the stories that we need to tell so that we can really think about how we're going to tackle this. And it's your support that makes these crucial stories possible. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. This is our mission, independent journalism, and the largest share of our funding is listener support. So please go ahead and make a monthly contribution. And keep in mind that you can get a brand new, gorgeous WBUR hat. It is a winter hat, a knit cap with a jaunty pom-pom on top. It'll keep you warm throughout these endless winter months. And all you have to do is contribute $15 or more, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from Morgan Stanley with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the Market. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. More than sickness or accidents, firearms are now the leading cause of death for children in America. A new study published by a journal from the American Medical Association finds that since 2004, gun-related deaths rose by over 45 percent overall. The study in JAMA Network Open also looked at who is most affected by both homicides and suicides using firearms. Researcher Eric Fliegler is an author of the study, and he joins us now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. You are looking back at more than 30 years of data. What trends stood out to you over that period of time? What we see over time, um, in the 1990s, fatality rates were high, and they started to come down. And they came down into the uh, during the 2000s to about 10 per 100,000, which is a high number, but it stayed stable for about 15 years. And then they started to rise, and in particular, around 2014 started to go up. But what was really striking to us was just how much this has accelerated. And in particular, uh, in the last two years, we've seen an over 25% increase in firearm deaths in our country and specifically over 40% increase in firearm homicides and about a 17% increase in firearm suicides. And you look at how these firearm deaths affect specific populations, specific groups. So in the past decade, you find that homicide rates for Black women in particular have tripled. The rates of suicide by firearm for white men have increased by more than 40%. And the rate for women as a whole is also rising. 
Some of the really important information that we found, just as you alluded to, in particular includes like the disparities. The numbers that are quite striking when it comes to firearm homicides is in particular among young black men. So young black men between the ages of 20 and 24 are dying at a rate of about 141 per 100,000. That's in contrast to young white men of the same age, where it's about six per 100,000. That difference, that, that, that's a 22-fold increase among black men versus white men. To what do you attribute that huge disparity and that just, you know, overwhelming number of homicide deaths related to firearms among young black men? What's driving that? Um, a lot of these types of fatalities are occurring in urban areas, and they occur particularly in areas with high concentrations of poverty. Some of this goes back to issues of structural racism, how over time our society has evolved, where you have black families live in areas with very high concentrations of poverty. So that, that is certainly part of the issue. It's not the only one. When we think about homicides in particular, this is not just about gang violence. This is often interpersonal violence between people who know one another. And so there's all different reasons that lead to these rates of people dying. Sticking with men for a moment, what might be driving the high rate of suicide among older white men? The most common reason somebody dies by gun is access to a gun. The rates of ownership of firearms are highest among white households. Children, young adults, who die by firearm suicide, they're almost always using guns that were available in their own homes. And so having guns either kept outside of the home, having a gun stored locked up and locked up separate from the ammunition, also locked up, and locked up in a way that the child can't access it, is a significant step forward for making things safer. Among older people who are the owners of these guns, one of the major things that have been moving forward in our country are the red flag laws or ERPO laws that say that you can help get a gun out of the house if somebody is at imminent risk to themselves. So if you really want to think about why the fatalities are happening and how do you reduce them, there are two sides of the same coin to try to uh, reduce the access. Men are still more likely to die of gun violence than women, but your study documented a really substantial increase in the rate of gun deaths, especially again among black women. What might be going on there? We don't know precisely why it is that this has increased with black women, but it has increased actually with all women, and that's an important thing. When you think about homicide associated with women, the majority of the time, it is an intimate partner who has caused this. There are laws that forbid people who have domestic violence restraining orders from holding those guns. Um, however, those laws are very different across the country. And so the variability in how these guns are owned is going to be a significant contributor to whether women end up dying by domestic violence. You know, one of the lessons of the midterm elections was that for all of the fear-mongering around crime and violence in some of these political campaigns, the data can be more complex than the picture some politicians would try to paint. Where does your study fit into the overall picture of violence in the U.S.? And what more research do you think needs to be done? The important takeaways that people need to be aware of is just that though firearm violence has been a problem in our country going back decades, it is really on the increase. The numbers are quite real right now. If you went back 10 years ago, you would see that roughly 30,000 people a year were dying by guns. In 2021, it's over 48,000 people who have died by firearms. And that's a shockingly high number. We need to think as a society, how do we approach gun violence? In the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, a major cause of fatalities in our country was motor vehicle crashes. 
And there was somewhat thought of an inevitability that, you know, people are going to die in motor vehicles and, you know, it's probably people's fault. But researchers and the government eventually said, that's not the way we need to think about this. And we need to study what's going on with motor vehicle crashes. We need to look at the data and we need to make changes. And what did these changes do? They led to seatbelts and then seatbelt laws. They led to airbags and mandates around having them. They led to changes on our highways and all sorts of attitudinal changes about drunk driving. And what have we seen? We've seen a significant, enormous reduction in motor vehicle crashes. What we didn't do is say, you can't have a car, and we take away the cars because people are dying. We need to think about guns in the same way. That's researcher Eric Fliegler. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much for having me. The Detroit Pistons have a new uniform in honor of a saint. St. Cecilia is a Catholic church with a gym that launched dozens of NBA stars. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha Roscoe, we hear from one of them about the difference a small and caring place can make to teens and to teams. You can listen live at this station's website or at NPR.org. The Sackler family name greeted visitors and museums across the world at the height of the opioid crisis. Photographer Nan Golden led the fight against their influence in the art world, and her campaign is the focus of the new documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. My anger at the Sackler family, it's personal. When you think of the profit of people's pain, you can only be furious. But director Laura Poitras goes beyond capturing Nan the activist. We see Nan the artist, her family, life on the margins in New York City, interwoven with her slideshows and candid reflections. The film is in theaters now, and Poitras, whose work also includes the award-winning documentary Citizen Four, joins me now. Thanks so much for being here. It's great to be here with you, Sarah. Your work up until this point has shined a light on whistleblowers and government surveillance, the case of Edward Snowden in Citizen Four, for example. But this film is far more intimate. What inspired you to document Nan Golden's life in this way? I was initially inspired by the activism that she was doing. Um, Her organization, Pain, Prescription Addiction Intervention Now, was staging these um, big protests inside museums. And, you know, to have an artist of her stature, of her influence, using that power in the art world to call for accountability, I was excited about it. And it kind of sort of aligned itself with uh, my previous films, individuals who are taking on powerful forces. But then you're right, it is more, has an intimacy that maybe my other films don't have, so it's sort of moving in a different direction, and that's, I think, largely to do with the collaboration with Nan. And the documentary weaves all of these different threads together. You learn about Nan's family, her early life, her friends sort of in her young adult years, obviously her photography and activism against the Sacklers. Why was it so important for you to document this relationship between her life, her art, and her activism? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was really important to understand sort of the origins maybe of her work and her um, sort of lifelong fight against authority and power and where did it come from. I was interested in that. And then as a portrait of an artist, I felt like that was, you know, essential. And to bring her work into the film was, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer. You know, my real question always was like, what can I contribute Yeah, you've mentioned that you worked closely with Nan on this film and and really she was a collaborator on it. How did you approach the filmmaking process, you know, working with someone with so much expertise in this area? 
you know, there's so much of the the story is about her personal life, and that's a truth that only she knows. Um, and we did these very intimate interviews. They were recorded over the course of a year and a half in her living room, the same living room where she was also doing her activism. And there was just a real intimacy there that reminded me, like the intimacy of her voice and how she talked about her life and her artwork reminded me very much of her photographs, very, very raw, deeply personal uh, and moving. To a certain extent, this film is really about two epidemics, opioids, of course, but also HIV AIDS, which is something that took the lives of many of Nan's friends in the art world in New York in the, the 80s and 90s. And Nan used photography to bring awareness to the HIV AIDS crisis. In your film, that crisis is juxtaposed with her anti-Sackler activism. What connection do you see between those two crises? Yeah, I mean, it's a key element of the film. We sort of build this intersection between these historical moments, the AIDS crisis and this exhibition that Nan had organized um, that caused this controversy and, and her current activism, um, which is, as she says, very largely inspired by the work of ACT UP. I hope the film is a societal critique, that it's it sort of looks at a society that, you know, suffers from amnesia, that we also suffer from not taking care of people who are vulnerable, and that we often reward the wrong things, you know. It also feels like a big theme is stigma. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Nan talks about a lot of very intimate things in the film, and there's this, um, I think, a goal that she has and, and that her organization has, and that I think also the film is to shift where we put something like shame, right? The shame belongs on the Sackler family and uh, for their, you know, reckless promotion of OxyContin for decades. The Sackler family has enormous power, billions of dollars, deep ties to the most powerful cultural institutions in America. Your film looks at a different kind of power that Nan sort of wields as one person. Tell us what you saw in her. How would you describe her power? Yeah, you know, again, this is really what motivated me. Like, uh, it was the fact that she was going to leverage the power that she has in in museums. I mean, she's her work is being collected by all the museums she's protesting, right? So she's definitely going after and using her influence in these spaces. Um, and I think, you know, it's something that she felt absolutely just compelled to do, that she had to do something. And she had, you know, she was speaking from a lot of authority, both as, a, as an artist whose work is exhibited and, and collected by these museums, and also as somebody who has herself been through uh, addiction to Oxycontin. As you were making this film, did you think that this effort would work? Did you think Nan would be able to convince these museums and institutions to actually back away from all of that Sackler money? I think in the early months of their demonstrations, I think it was really uncertain. I mean, the museums didn't, they tried to pretend it wasn't happening. None of them responded. Um, and so it, it really took a good year and a half before there was movement. And so, yeah, I don't think it was in any way a foregone conclusion. You know, there was a time when it seemed very likely that the Sackler family would pay billions of dollars, which is a small fraction of their fortune, and manage to keep their reputation as generous philanthropists. What do you think that their long-term legacy will be? On one hand, you know, what's happened is very much um, very American story about impunity, right? On the other hand, you know, I, I think their their name definitely has been shamed. And I don't know that they're going to get that, that reputation back. And that is, you know, largely the work of Payne shedding a light on this, you know, along with the work of a lot of investigative journalists who spent decades trying to raise the alarm about what was happening. That's Laura Poitras, director of the new documentary, 
All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. It's in theaters now. Thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you. And we should note, while members of the Sackler family say they sincerely regret the role of OxyContin in the opioid crisis, they deny any wrongdoing. Their company, Purdue Pharma, has twice admitted criminal activity tied to OxyContin sales, but the Sacklers themselves have never faced criminal charges. Listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University, presenting Once, a musical based on the motion picture, December 7th to the 10th at the Booth Theater, bu.edu slash CFA. Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com slash gig. And the Greater Boston Food Bank. You can give the gift of a holiday meal for just $30. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. And thanks for listening to Weekend Edition Saturday. This is our last fundraiser for this year. We would like you to think about how and why you turn to WBUR for your independent journalism that keeps you informed and enlightened throughout the year. Listener support's the number one way we fuel our journalism. So we'd like to ask you to go ahead and make a contribution, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And just for the next few minutes, we have a triple match in effect. Some members of our Murrah Society gave their money to triple your support. If you give $100, it turns into $300 for WBUR. We get triple the amount you give. But to get in on this match, you must take action in the next 15 minutes. This is only in effect until 9 o'clock, and it's 845 right now. So please help us take advantage of this generosity by giving right now at WBUR.org or when you call 1-800-909-9287. Yes, and as you said... Be sure to give right now while you're thinking about it, while it's top of mind. I don't know about you, but if I get a text message and then Mm. just think, oh, I'll get back to that later, I promptly forget about it. (laughs) So just while it's fresh, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and contribute to keep the journalism on this station strong. And also just to uh, keep the the programming that we have on the weekends – whether it's hard-hitting news like the uh, like the the story we just heard about the legacy of the Sackler family, to updates on the World Cup, and in between we have interviews with artists. So many things on Weekend Edition. It's a really fun program that I know I look forward to every weekend. You can go to wbur.org or call one eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven. And really, it's the kind of thing, anything that fits into your budget: five dollars a month, ten dollars a month. 100, if that works for you, uh, please consider supporting the journalism on WBUR. You can go to WBUR.org or again, call 1-800-909-9287.
It's Layla Faldid from NPR's Morning Edition. The demonization of fact-based journalism is one of democracy's biggest threats. This aversion to truth has taken hold as the number of local newsrooms has dwindled, leaving reams of disinformation to fill the void. In public radio, we have a responsibility to counteract disinformation. This station is an oasis amid all the noise and fiction. Having a reporter at the school board meeting at City Hall, that is our resistance to the undermining of a free press. We resist by being there, by providing platforms for people to see themselves reflected and to see difference. We resist by building bridges and by holding people to account. We do it thanks to you. You give us the tools we need to fight attacks on truth by donating to this station. Here's how. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. We take those responsibilities very seriously, and we know through everything you've told us over the months and over the years that you appreciate that. So please take a moment now to think about how you can support the journalism that you count on here on WBUR. And just really for the next few minutes, about 12 minutes left of this incredibly generous triple match. Uh, That is in effect meaning that if you're the sort of person that uh, sort of likes to wait for extra incentives before giving, um, now is your shining moment because until nine o'clock, everything you contribute to WBUR is tripled thanks to the generosity of uh, members of our Murrow Society who've who've given their money to triple your support. So go ahead and give. Um, if this is uh, what you know, if you've been thinking about giving a hundred dollars, if you do that right now, that turns into three hundred dollars. If you give a thousand dollars, it turns into three thousand uh, dollars. WBUR picks up triple the amount. And and keep in mind, uh, we'd be happy to also thank you uh, with some gifts. Um, I'm at the moment actually looking at this wonderful WBUR hat. It's a it's a new winter hat with a pom-pom, and it will keep you nice and toasty warm throughout the winter. And uh, show your support for WBUR, because it says WBUR. You can get that. You can triple your gift as long as you act in the next few minutes, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And it's so as Sharon mentioned, this is our year end fundraiser. It's the last one of the year. But also keep in mind that uh, when you give to WBUR, it is tax deductible as well. So the monthly contributions we really appreciate. It helps give us a reliable source of funding. But the one time gifts, um, it's a it's a great time to do that as well or consider doing that. So you can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Early in the pandemic, then-New York Governor Andrew Cuomo was a daily presence on television, calming worried citizens and updating them on his state's efforts to build hospitals and acquire medical gear to fight the growing toll of hospitalizations and deaths. All systems are go here. As you can see behind me, the material has already started to arrive. All of that material paid for by the federal government included what is now surplus. Ava Pukach found it up for auction in a cavernous space in upstate New York. Tall stacks of two by four wood, 11 piles of white metallic doors, and 32 cardboard boxes packed to the brim with lighting fixtures are just some of the items lining the inside of the New York State Preparedness Training Center. 
Each is tagged with a bright yellow sticker and a black number. Potential buyers weave through the aisles looking around the room, talking on the phone as they plan their bidding strategy. They're looking at FEMA supplies from the COVID-19 pandemic. New York State is hoping to turn it back all into cash. Joe Brill of the state's Office of General Services says the State Department of Health reviewed its inventory to pull out any items the state could need in the future. What's left is up for bid. Walls, tents, and HVAC units, electrical, plumbing, and security systems. Other items included 9,000-gallon oxygen tanks, generators, lighting, air filters, and even ambulances. Buyers follow an auctioneer who's yelling from the back of a truck as it drives through the lot. 749. His assistant calls out bids made by an online pool of buyers separate from the in-person crowd bids. The auctioneer gazes over the buyers and rattles off prices, increasing by $25, $50, $100 as he gauges the mood of the crowd, often selling lots in less than a minute. A bulk of the auction also takes place outside, since equipment like transformers, HVAC units, and buses are too large to store inside. After the auction finishes, the buyers have just a few days to haul their fines away. Some people bid on almost everything, but Doug Slauson takes a more reserved approach. He represents a bridge building company and came with a specific list of items, which today includes lights, but only if it's below his target price. I don't feel the need to bid on anything unless I know I'm going to get below my number. Karen Abbott is bidding on items with hopes of reselling them. As the auctioneer is trucked from lot to lot, Abbott follows close behind, bidding on items even if she doesn't know exactly what she'll do with it. What did you just buy? Fans. I don't know what they are. They're some kind of fan. I'll figure it out when I get them back to my yard. <laughs> And as the auction comes to a close, bidders head to pay for their purchases and volunteers start moving piles of bought items with forklifts to be ready for pickup. New York's Office of General Services says the auction brought in more than $1.4 million, which will primarily go to the state's general fund. For NPR News, I'm Ava Pukach in Oriskany, New York. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. And coming up on Weekend Edition, you'll get stories including a look at the Georgia Senate runoff. Uh, But at the moment, we want you to think about this. Listener support is the foundation of our independent journalism. It is the largest share of our funding. Your tax-deductible year-end gift is so important today. And there's something extra important to think about in these next five or so minutes, and that is a triple match is in effect, but just until 9 o'clock. It's 8.54 right now, so uh, get ready to take action just for these next few minutes because of the generosity of some members of our Murrow Society. When you 
give whatever amount is right for you your contribution is tripled. So you give $100, it turns into $300 for WBUR. How do you do it? You go to WBUR.org or you call 1-800-909-9287 and we thank you very much. And when you go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287, you are helping us reach a very important goal. We have an $800,000 goal this uh, this winter fundraiser. And, uh, you know, with this triple match, that can go so far in helping us reach our goal. It's the same goal we had this time last year. We, you know, set these goals so that we can keep our journalism strong. Uh, just make sure that we can be here for you for years to come and stay reliable and also provide you these stories that just have such they give you such an interesting insight to things you never really thought about before. Right. Like we were just at an auction in New York looking at where the extra emergency supplies went. Uh, it's one of the beautiful things about Weekend Edition that we hope you feel like you can continue to support, whether it's $5 a month, $15 a month, $200 a month, whatever fits into your budget. We don't have a paywall. It's the beautiful thing about WBUR. So you can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And again, this triple match is in effect for just the next three or so minutes. Uh, And this transaction is only going to take you a minute or so for you to make your contribution to keep WBUR thriving. We know that you count on us, that you enjoy Weekend Edition. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is coming up at 10 o'clock. You enjoy the rest of the weekend programming. You probably listen during the week as well. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. That's how... You make your contribution. It will be tripled if you do that in the next couple of minutes. Hey there, it's Tamara Keith from NPR. I thrive on deadlines. I don't think I'd get anything done without them. Just ask my editor. If you're the same way, I'm here to help you out with a little nudge to get something important done. I'm going to give you a deadline for donating to this station. You can knock it out in five minutes, I swear. Start a timer. Your deadline is now. Here's how to give. You can call you can call 1-800-909-9287 or go to wbur.org and Sharon Tam uh, Tamara just gave us a deadline but we can also give you some thank you gifts. Oh yes. We have I am looking at right in the studio now uh we have a thank you gift for $15, not $15 a month, just a $15 contribution or more. You can get a WBUR hat. It's black, white and yellow. It's got a big pom-pom on the top. It's a really nice, warm hat, too. Like, it's not flimsy or anything. Uh, So please consider giving. We will say thank you with this hat. We also have a sweatshirt. Uh, that I think is pretty cute, too. Um, I've worn it around. It is. It's, it's awesome. In the two days that I've gotten it, I've worn it around several times. So uh, highly recommend that. That one is $20 a month or more. So that's a monthly contribution. Uh, really, we appreciate anything that fits into your budget. $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month if you want that sweatshirt. And you do still have a few minutes to get in on that triple match. So you can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. That's right. And we can kind of uh, moan and groan sometimes about deadlines. But in fact, um, 
we kind of couldn't live without them. And right now, we uh, really, in order to thrive, we need you to meet this deadline of making your contribution. Uh, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. The triple match is in effect for about one more minute. And what that means is if you give $100, it turns into $300 for WBUR. If it's right for you to give $1,000, that would turn into $3,000. If $15 makes sense for you, you know, that's going to be tripled as well. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Feel free to uh, make clear that you really want this WBUR hat, which is fantastic, or the fantastic WBUR sweatshirt. They are both wonderful gifts. We would be happy to send you so you can uh, promote your support of WBUR after you've supported WBUR by going to 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, helping teachers to become agents of learning in the community through master's programs and licensures. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. Huntington Theater. Give art, culture, and community. Gift the Huntington. Gift certificates, seat plaques, flexible packages, and more. Huntingtontheater.org slash gifts. And Good News Garage. Accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. Goodnewsgarage.org. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The British Defense Ministry says Russia is focusing many of its troops on the eastern Ukrainian town of Bakhmut along an entrenched front line that stretches just 10 miles. Philip Marx has more from London. The UK's Defence Intelligence Organisation said in a tweet that Russia is likely planning to surround the town from north and south with a series of tactical advances. The UK assessment is that Russian troops are working to strengthen their presence in a marshy region with soft ground to the west of the town around a nearby small river. Moscow's forces have prioritised Bakhmut since August, the UK said, and the town's seizure could lead to a greater military threat for nearby cities like Kramatorsk and Slovyansk. British authorities said the capture of Bakhmut could have become a purely symbolic and political objective, given the minimal gains but significant costs of the months-long effort. For NPR News, I'm Bill Marks in London. Russian state news agencies say Moscow will not accept a price cap on Russian oil exports. The Kremlin spokesman is being quoted as saying, though, that Russia will respond once the cap is analyzed. The U.S., Europe, and the Group of Seven agreed to the cap at $60 per barrel. It's to take effect on Monday along with the EU's embargo on most Russian oil shipments. Jurors in Los Angeles have begun deliberating the fate of former Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein. NPR's Mandelito Barco reports on the rape and sexual assault trial. 
Harvey Weinstein is in court facing seven counts of raping and sexually assaulting four women from 2004 to 2013. That includes a former actress now married to California's governor. For weeks, each of the women gave graphic testimony, saying the former film producer had lured them to hotel rooms for his attacks. Prosecutors characterized Weinstein as a predator and a monster. His attorneys argued in court that the accusers had consensual, quote, transactional sex with him to further their careers in Hollywood. He's already serving a 23-year sentence in New York, which he's appealing. If he's found guilty in L.A., the 70-year-old could face a de facto life sentence. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News, Los Angeles. A federal judge says she'll decide early next week whether to block Oregon's voter-approved gun law, days before it's set to take effect. Oregon Public Broadcasting's Jonathan Levinson reports. A gun rights group, two gun store owners, and three sheriffs asked U.S. District Judge Karen Immergut to block the new law from taking effect December 8th. The law would require a permit to purchase a firearm and ban magazines carrying more than 10 rounds. Immergut said a recent Supreme Court decision created a new landscape for gun laws, calling the case before her very complicated. Oregon Department of Justice lawyers say magazines are not arms and therefore not protected by the Second Amendment. Lawyers for the gun rights group say high-capacity magazines are critical to self-defense. Immergut said she'd rule next week. For NPR News, I'm Jonathan Levinson in Portland. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Sports bars in Boston are expecting a busy morning as the U.S. men's team takes on the Netherlands in the World Cup round of 16. WBUR's Rob Lane has more. Game time is 10 a.m. If you're headed out to watch, expect some company. The soccer fan group American Outlaws is organizing three watch parties in Greater Boston, one at the Banshee in Dorchester and others at bars in Inman Square and Government Center. All three venues expect to hit capacity. The group's Evan Cipriano says watching World Cup soccer is different from a big Patriots or Red Sox game. You can expect people to be standing arm in arm all game, singing songs, making noise. They maybe can't hear us tens of thousands of miles away in in Qatar, but you you support the team as if you're almost there in the stands. At this stage of the tournament, it's win or go home for all teams. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. A former Natick town meeting member will serve 15 days in prison for participating in the January 6th insurrection. Suzanne Ayani pleaded guilty to charges of entering the Capitol during the riot. The sentence for Ayani includes three years probation, 60 hours of community service, and a $500 fine. Today, Somerville is marking Citizenship Day. Volunteers who speak six languages will be at St. Anthony's Church to help green card holders work towards citizenship. Attendees do not have to be from Somerville, but are encouraged to register through the city's website. It is 57 degrees in Boston, breezy today with showers and highs in the upper 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a MedEx Medicare supplemental plan that works for you Visit bluecrossma.com slash go. The Jewish Arts Collaborative with Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, an innovative celebration at the Museum of Fine Arts, December 15th, jartsboston.org. And Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. Argentina VR didn't want to lose her business. After the pandemic hit, she owns a barbershop and a cleaning business. 
she was able to learn all sorts of new skills with the help of a nonprofit. She was able to do spreadsheets and social media marketing and all these necessary things in the 21st century. Oh my God, it's better. And we can find everything like fast. How does it feel to be able to do all of this stuff now? I feel, oh my God, very, very, very nice. I feel like, you know, like I'm the best. I think we can learn a lot from listening to other people's experiences, especially when it's something that has worked. My name is Yasmin Amr. I'm a senior business reporter at WBUR, giving the gift of a more informed citizenry. I mean, that is not just about you. That is about literally everybody else around you. So I'd encourage everybody to think about giving. Just go to WBUR.org. And that is such an important message from our colleague, Yasmin Ammer. Uh, and we encourage you to do exactly what she said. Go to WBUR.org. Make a modest contribution to WBUR. That helps create the journalism that we all need. WBUR is very focused on local journalism in addition to bringing you news from the nation and the world. one 800 90 99287 or WBUR.org. Think about what reports like Yasmin Emmer's mean to you, reporting on uh, the really human side of the news. Think about what this means to you and give what you can. Listener support is the number one way that we fuel our journalism. So, Give $100, give $200, give $15 a month, give whatever you uh, can give that makes sense for you at WBUR.org. And think about it. WBUR is here for you all the time. I mean, the, the airwaves are running 24-7, and we're here for you through, uh, during your commute to work during the week, but we're also here for you on the weekend when you're kind of relaxing a little bit. There's still people running the studio here uh, at WBUR. Sharon is here with you every weekend for Weekend Edition and beyond. So please consider supporting the the wonderful work that we do here and the other staff on the weekends that, that we do here for you all the time. Uh, you can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And, you know, uh, Carrie, you mentioned something earlier that I want to kind of remind folks of, which is that uh, the, the, the tip of the iceberg effect, the fact that uh, folks hear the journalism that we produce here on WBUR and naturally don't necessarily think about all the layers behind that. But there is an awful lot going on behind every report, whether it's you know, uh, the reporters, the producers, the editors, the um, digital crew that is making it look uh, to make making everything shine on uh, WBUR.org. Uh, there are so many people focused on maintaining our high standards of excellent journalism. And we know that this matters to you. So that's why we're asking you to think about that for a second, but don't think too long before you make the call. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And thank you. This is 
Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. Good morning. The U.S. job market is on a roll. Employers added another 263,000 jobs last month, far more than forecasters were expecting. Yesterday's jobs report capped a week of mostly positive economic news, which President Biden praised. As we go into the holiday season, here's what this all means. The Americans are working. The economy is growing. Wages are rising faster than inflation. NPR's Scott Horsley is here to talk about what this all means. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Sarah. Unemployment is still very low, just 3.7 percent in November. Seems like a good time for anyone who's looking for work. Is that true? It is. Uh, Opportunities are plentiful. Uh, There are more job openings and there are people looking for work. And as a result, employers are having to bid up wages at a pretty rapid rate. Now, the president is cherry-picking a bit when he says wages are outpacing inflation. There have been some months when that's been true. Over the last year, though, average wages have not kept pace with inflation. Wages in November were up 5.1% from a year ago. We know prices have been climbing faster than that. There's no question, though, wages are rising at a rapid rate. And while that's good for workers, Julia Pollack, who's chief economist at the job search website ZipRecruiter, says it could add even more fuel to the inflationary fire. Wage growth does seem to be the main sort of contributing factor now to inflation. Initially, it was energy prices and supply chain issues and, and goods prices. But core services inflation is now very much the driving issue. And that is very much tied to wages. The inflation watchdogs at the Federal Reserve are nervous about that. Uh, even though we have started to see a drop in the price of some things like gasoline and used cars, there's a worry that services could get more expensive as a result of rising wages. Yeah, so is that what's driving the feds to raise these interest rates? That's right. The Fed has been uh, raising interest rates at the fastest pace in decades, from near zero back in March to just under 4% today. That's making it more expensive to get a car loan or a mortgage or to carry a balance on your credit card. And all that's designed to slow down the economy and the job market. Uh, It takes time for those rate hikes to work, though, and outside of a few very sensitive sectors, we're just not seeing much of a slowdown yet. We did get news this week, Scott, that the economy grew faster in the late summer and early fall than initially reported. What does that mean? Right. When the third quarter GDP report initially came out about a month ago, the Commerce Department said the economy had grown at an annual pace of 2.6%. This week, revised data showed the growth rate was actually a little bit better than that, 2.9%. Some of that is exaggerated by things like trade that have already started to turn around. But we did see a real improvement in business investment and consumer spending. As you might expect, this time of year, we just saw an avalanche of spending after the Thanksgiving holiday to kick off the holiday shopping. Is that a good sign? It's a sign the American consumer is still very much alive and well. Uh, That's important because consumer spending is the biggest driver of the overall economy. It's not clear, though, how long shoppers can keep that up. Another report this week showed that consumer spending in October increased faster than people's incomes. Now, how's that possible? Well, people are dipping into savings and putting it on the credit card. Early in the pandemic, when people couldn't spend money and the government was sending out relief payments, savings rates soared. But now that cash cushion is being whittled away. Uh, The savings rate in October was the lowest in 17 years, while credit card debt is climbing. And that can't go on forever. NPR's Scott Horsley. Thanks so much, Scott. You're welcome. 
Farmers, manufacturers, and retailers around the country are relieved this weekend now that there won't be a rail strike. President Biden has signed into law a measure that averts any strike. The bill imposes a five-year contract deal that his administration helped to broker. Who's not happy are some of the workers who had voted down that very deal because it did not include paid sick days. NPR's Andrea Shu has more. Matthew Weaver was hanging drywall at a rail yard in Lordstown, Ohio on Wednesday when the House of Representatives passed a resolution giving rail workers seven days of paid sick leave. I was more excited. I was like really optimistic that we were going to get some sick days. Something his union had been holding out for since its members voted down the contract deal in October. But as the hours passed and the measure moved on to the Senate, where 60 votes were needed for passage, Weaver's doubts grew. As I heard the news, it's like, ah, this is not going to happen. And he was right. What Congress did pass and deliver to President Biden was a bill that simply imposed the agreement that eight rail unions had approved, but four others had rejected. The one that gives workers a 24 percent raise over five years, a cap on health care premiums and one additional personal day, but no paid sick days. It's exactly what Biden had asked Congress to do, to stick to the deal on the table, no modifications or delay because the stakes were too high. Biden warned that there would be economic devastation and massive job losses should railroad workers strike. Congress, I think, has to act to prevent it. It's not an easy call, but I think we have to do it. It's really sad. Reese Murtaugh, a roadway mechanic in Richmond, Virginia, has thought all along that if anyone could secure paid sick days for rail workers, it would be this president, this administration. Who knows what's going to happen, you know, in the next election, who's in there. But this was like the dream team of pro-labor. You know, if it's not happening this time, then we're not going to get them. (laughs) At the bill signing at the White House yesterday, President Biden sought to counter that sense of defeat. Look, I know this bill doesn't have paid sick leave. That these rail workers and frankly every worker in America deserves. But that fight isn't over. Murtaugh's not convinced. What Biden did, he says, sets a precedent. The railroad saw that even the most labor-friendly of presidents was not willing to risk a strike. In future negotiations, the carriers are going to remember that and use it against us. And it's going to be even harder for us to negotiate a fair contract. In a statement, the Association of American Railroads, the trade group representing the freight railroads, said, without a doubt, there is more to be done to further address our employees' work-life balance concerns. But the group also called the deal the most generous in history and says the wages and benefits maintain rail's place among the best jobs in the nation. Now, because this contract covers five years going back to 2020, rail workers will soon see a sizable payout, back raises and bonuses averaging $16,000. Matthew Weaver, the rail worker we heard from earlier, is expecting a wave of departures. There'll definitely be railroad workers waiting for that back paycheck to come and then start looking for another career. After all, he says, there are other jobs out there. There's refinery jobs, there's trucking jobs, there's many other crafts out there that pay better and they get the respect from their employer. Something he says is lacking in railroad jobs these days. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. Now to Georgia, where voting ends Tuesday in the runoff election between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker. WABE's Sam Greenglass is following a couple of key voter groups and joins us now to explain how they could shape the results. Good morning, Sam. Hey, Sarah. This is a quick turnaround here. Campaigns had just four weeks to get their base supporters back to the polls again for this runoff. How is each campaign approaching that task? 
Let's start with Walker. He has been rallying voters in some deep red counties, and his stump speech remains pretty focused on these conservative voters. He really leans into culture war issues more than he talks about the economy. We may need to get to leaders in Washington that say, if you don't like the rules of the United States of America, you can leave. We're not going to keep you here. That's what we need right now. On the other hand, Warnock needs to juice turnout among reliable Democratic voters. The turnout rate for Black and Hispanic voters was down in November compared with 2018. And Warnock talks about student debt relief and his vote to confirm Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. But he is also making an explicit play for independent voters and even Republicans who have reservations about Walker, given allegations of domestic violence and his many false claims. This is not about right and left. This is about the difference between right and wrong. And Sam, I want to talk about those Republican-leaning voters. Why is Senator Warnock angling so hard for them? Well, you've probably heard the term split ticket voters pop up around this election specifically. These are people who voted Republican for governor in November, but then Democratic for Senate. And while that might seem like this unicorn voter, they do exist, especially in the suburbs. And Walker got about 200,000 fewer votes than Republican Governor Brian Kemp did. One of those voters who I have followed up with over the course of this campaign is Republican Cameron Llewellyn, and he told me recently he is going back to the polls to vote for Warnock again. Uh, he just can't look past Walker's controversies. I care about my taxes. I care about my kids, right? I care about inflation. So if you can speak intelligently about those things, you can earn my vote for that. But you're not going to earn my vote if essentially you try to portray yourself as something that you're not. The question is whether others like Llewellyn come back or they stay home now that the Senate is the only race on the ballot. Plus, there are people who voted Libertarian or left that Senate race blank in November. What will they do? It's an open question. All very interesting. Any other groups you're watching heading into Tuesday? I am keeping my eyes on 18 to 29-year-olds in Georgia. This is a group that broke heavily for Democrats, but their share of the electorate actually dropped in November over the last midterm. And older age brackets, they vote at way higher rates than these younger people do. But for the runoff, the Warnock campaign and voter outreach groups have amped up their canvassing on campuses. Uh, Jordan Madden is helping organize at Georgia State University. All of us are working. All of us are studying and wrapping up our semesters and getting final. Some people are graduating in December. We had to move very swiftly and effectively. Organizers say that pop-up early vote locations on three Atlanta campuses surpassed November's early vote turnout at those places. And at least 16,000 voters under 30 who did not vote in November, they have voted in the runoff so far. That's WABE Sam Greenglass. Thanks so much, Sam. Thanks, Sarah. You're listening to NPR News.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit focused on our most pressing sustainability issues, including a green economy. More at ceres.org slash WBUR. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, presenting Medal of Honor, showcasing artistic interpretations of gold from the Renaissance and today. Gardnermuseum.org. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org, and you're listening to Weekend Edition, and we're glad that you are. We know that you count on Weekend Edition every weekend here on WBUR, and we're asking you to think about what that means to you, to be able to tune in and listen to the independent journalism that WBUR is proud to present to you, and then make a contribution. This is our last fundraiser for the year, and listener support is the number one way that we fuel our journalism. So you can call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and keep in mind that we would love to send you a really cool WBUR winter hat. WBUR's Carrie Young is in the studio with me, and we have both been admiring this hat. And it it, it feels soft and warm. It looks great. It's got a jaunty pom-pom. And if you would like to um, wear this WBUR hat, all you have to do is support WBUR, and you choose the amount, uh, whatever amount feels right for you. Anything $15 or more, we'll be happy to send you the hat. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. That's right, Sharon. We bring thank you gifts to the table when we uh, when we come to you for our year-end fundraiser, uh, because really, it goes to show you just how much your support matters to us, right? Your support matters. You hear it on the airwaves every day from the local reporting, the national reporting, and even the international reporting that we provide to you. But we do like to give you a token of our thanks. So that is the hat that we have for $15 or more, just $15. It's a pretty easy contribution for most budgets. Uh, If you want to go for a little bit more of a regular contribution, $20 a month. We also have a really cute uh, sweatshirt. It's got WBUR in block letters uh, stacked on top of each other. I know I've personally, since I was given it, maybe on Thursday, I've worn it around town a couple of times. So can say that, that this is also a wonderful thank you gift. So we, we want to say thank you, but just please consider what this is going to support, right? Um, you're supporting our local journalism. We talked to here and now uh, co-host Robin Young, who is on our national team, but she talked to us about what's at the heart of the reporting and storytelling that you get from WBUR. Well, I think we've seen in the past few years why public radio matters so much. I mean, call us kind of nerdy, but we have a dedication to fact-checking, to the truth, to hearing all voices, to making sure that we amplify voices that aren't getting heard with a lot of the bombast that's coming at us. There are things that you hear on public radio with the way the broadcast landscape has changed that you just don't hear in many other places. So I I think people have come to really feel the value of public radio. 
Public radio is really a gem in the media landscape. Robin Young put it so well. This is the journalism that we're asking you to support. Our listeners who give really do provide the largest share of our funding. We rely on you guys. And that's why we're asking you to join us. Please consider making your tax-deductible year-end contribution at WBUR.org, or you can give us a call at 1-800-909-9287. And, you know, Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering spoke with us about the importance of our local news in this moment. Local news is being gutted. Local newspapers, local news sources. And it is in local news, good, attentive, quality journalism, that we both hold local officials accountable, understand the local trends that affect all of us, recognize local solutions. It's how we vote. It's how we go to school. It's how we work. So for WBUR to have the capacity and ability to double down in the local space, to be truly available as a local journalism resource, the stakes are just so high for being able to do that now. Local journalism depends on and deserves local support. And again, our listeners who support us provide the biggest share of our funding. And that is why we are asking you to make a contribution, make your tax-deductible year-end contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And again, we would be happy to thank you with this very um, warm, cozy, uh, cheerful that's w- a good way to describe it. WBUR winter hat. I mean, you can't wear a pom- you can't wear a sort of floppy top pom pom without looking um, cheerful. It's just it it just happens that way. And we would be happy to send you that hat. It's uh, it's a really nice way to sort of show your support for WBUR after you have tangibly supported WBUR and. All you have to do is contribute $15. We'd be happy to send the hat your way. You can contribute more. We'll still be happy to send the hat your way. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And our goal for our winter fundraiser is $800,000. Through That's our big goal for the whole thing. And that may seem like, you know, what can my $15 a month do for that? But it really does add up. Um, you know, if you do that, if 10 other people do that, it, it makes a bigger difference than you know. And by giving monthly, too, that we love when listeners give monthly because it's a reliable and sustainable uh, form of giving. But if that doesn't fit in your budget, that is okay too. We're we're open to everyone. We don't have a paywall. And so if you think a one-time gift uh, works for your budget a little bit better, we would love that. So you can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you so much for listening to us this morning and weekend edition. And we'll be hearing back from you soon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals, this year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at MacFound.org. 
and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. There's some good news in the fight to save Americans dying of drug overdoses. New data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show the number of drug deaths has declined for three months in a row, and that's after years of dramatic increases. NPR's addiction correspondent Brian Mann joins us now to talk more about this. Hey, Brian. Hey, Sarah. First of all, just put this in perspective. How significant is this progress? Well, this is still pretty incremental. You know, drug deaths peaked at a devastating record around 110,000. They've now declined to around 107,000 deaths per year, according to the CDC. I think what's most significant here is that we're no longer seeing that really deadly upward trend. Uh, Javier Becerra, the head of the Department of Health and Human Services, spoke about this at a press conference yesterday. We're looking to continue to make progress because we know there's still ways to go. We're not going to let stigma drive us anymore. We're going to go where we need to go to help people thrive. And on that note, you know, stigma has always been a big barrier for people trying to get addiction care. What is the Biden administration doing to address that? What they began about a year ago, Sarah, is a shift of the national response to the overdose crisis to health care, treating addiction more and more as an illness, less as a crime. This has been controversial. You know, a lot of Republicans attacked the Biden administration during the midterms for being soft on drugs. But the Biden team argues that uh, these numbers show that their approach is beginning to help. The Biden administration wants to make two medications, naloxone and Narcan, more widely available to help fight this epidemic. How would those medicines help? Yeah, these drugs are super effective at reversing opioid overdoses. And the Biden team wants drug companies now to apply for permission to sell these drugs over the counter without the need uh, for a prescription. Experts say that could save a lot more lives. But so far, drug makers have been reluctant. Uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin spoke at that press conference yesterday, really trying to step up the pressure. I join with others in calling on the seven drug manufacturers who produce uh, naloxone, Narcan, or the equivalents to make their products available over the counter. What is that reluctance on the part of drug makers about? You know, this isn't really clear. The drug industry has raised some concerns uh, about problems with insurance companies, maybe product liability and some confusion among consumers. Some critics say this could also impact their company profits. Uh, NPR did reach out to a leading industry group to get their response to this new pressure from the White House. They sent a statement saying it's going to be up to these individual companies to decide whether or not to do this. Now, most of these drug deaths are from Illicit fentanyl, that's this incredibly powerful synthetic opioid that's being smuggled into the U.S. from Mexico. Brian, is there any progress in stopping that pipeline? Yeah, the short answer, unfortunately, is no. You know, fentanyl is being made using chemicals that come from China that are then formulated by the drug cartels in Mexico. And those countries have mostly stopped cooperating on drug interdiction efforts with the U.S. Uh, I spoke about this this week with Representative David Trone, a Democrat from Maryland. He's one of the leading experts on addiction in Congress. Our success right now on slowing or stopping the movement of fentanyl across the border is close to zero. We are failing uh, because we have two partners, China and Mexico, who have chosen not to participate in any meaningful way uh, to help us. The Biden administration says it is trying to hurt the cartels with a new effort targeting their money and their financing, but there's no sign yet that's making a dent. So I guess the good news here is that drug deaths appear to be leveling off or even declining a little bit. 
But the bad news, Sarah, is that uh, no one expects this public health crisis from fentanyl to vanish anytime soon. Brian Mann, NPR's addiction correspondent. Thanks so much for your time, Brian. All right. Thanks, Sarah. It was a record year for LGBTQ candidates in races for state legislatures across the country. Soon those lawmakers will file into state capitals in a year where many of their colleagues may file anti-LGBTQ legislation. That includes Montana, a state that passed multiple bills against transgender rights in recent years and where Republicans won even more seats in the state legislature. Montana Public Radio's Shaylee Rager reports. Well, welcome, everyone, to legislative orientation. Newly elected and returning Montana lawmakers were buzzing recently during their first gathering at the state capitol in Helena since the November election, including representative-elect Zoe Zephyr. Have you spent much time in the capitol? I testified in the capitol in 21, and that was the only time. Zephyr, originally from Billings and now a resident and soon-to-be representative of Missoula, testified often during the 2021 legislative session in opposition to bills targeted at transgender Montanans, like a proposal to ban trans women and girls from participating in women's sports. Here she is in January that same year. The image of, quote, trans women ruining the integrity of women's sports paints a false picture of life as a trans woman. It incorrectly claims that we have a competitive advantage, and it misses why trans people transition in the first place, which is to lead a happier life. Next month, Zephyr will return to the Capitol halls as Montana's first openly transgender woman elected to the state's legislature, sitting next to some of those same lawmakers who voted for those anti-trans bills. Watching bills pass through the legislature by one vote, I cried and I thought to myself, I bet I could change one heart, but I could change one mind. We need representation in that room. I'm going to try to get in there. And Zephyr's not alone in bringing that representation. She'll be joined by Representative-elect S.J. Howell, Montana's first trans non-binary legislator elected to office this year. Even though this is a win for Democrats, Montana is still getting redder. Republicans will more than dominate the legislature and could continue to push on restrictive policies like making it harder for trans Montanans to update the gender marker on their birth certificates. This issue was top of mind for at least one voter who I spoke with at a polling place in rural Montana on Election Day. Governor passed that you can't have your gender changed on your uh, birth certificate. Christine Holmes, a trans woman in Deer Lodge, says she has little hope things will change in Montana. And I believe that you should if you are who you think you are and know who you are. Lawmakers have begun drafting legislation to bring next session, and a few Republicans have already requested proposals restricting health care for trans minors and attendance at drag shows. In the past, Republicans have said these kinds of measures are aimed at protecting young people. Zephyr is realistic about the challenges she'll face in pushing back against legislation she says is harmful to the state's LGBTQ community, but she is optimistic. Representation is not a guarantee that you can stop harmful legislation from going through, but it is the best defense we have against bills that hurt vulnerable communities.
She points to her election as proof that there is support for representation. That's underlined by the historic year that LGBTQ candidates had in state legislatures across the country. 196 were elected, according to the Victory Fund. Zephyr says a top issue her constituents want her to prioritize is legislation to boost access to affordable housing, and she plans to work across the aisle on that and other issues. She says she'll be able to find shared goals with Republicans, even those who disagree with her. It is the day-in, day-out conversations with people, the humanizing effect of working with someone and working with someone who, over the course of the legislative session, will get to know that I have a nuanced life and that I have genuine beliefs and so do they. Montana Democrats have found allies and moderate Republicans before, and that also gives Zephyr hope. She'll start that work in earnest when she's sworn in to Montana's 68th legislative session on January 2nd. For NPR News, I'm Shaylee Rager in Helena, Montana. Mmm, baguettes. So crusty on the outside, so soft on the inside, so worthy of protection. You would not want the world to lose out on those French loaves now, would you? Well, it seems the UN agrees baguettes are being added to UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list. And as if this needed justification, you can hear why later today on All Things Considered. Ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. It's being hailed as the most exceptional art discovery from the antiquity era in half a century. Archaeologists in Italy have uncovered two dozen perfectly preserved bronze statues buried under hot mud and water for more than 2,000 years. NPR's Silvia Poggioli recently visited the excavation site that could rewrite the history of an ancient era. The town of San Casciano dei Bagni, literally San Casciano of the Baths, soars over a lush valley dotted with cypress trees. It's one of many picturesque Tuscan hilltop towns. But in the 3rd century BC, it had a unique attraction. The ancient Etruscans built a sanctuary at the local hot springs that later gave the town its name. The valley just below the town has 42 sources that provide one of the largest flows of thermal water in Europe, says Ludovico Salerno, a member of the local archaeological association. This source is the most powerful in San Casciano. Every day, he adds, it pumps out hundreds of thousands of gallons of 105-degree water. We're standing on the edge of the excavation site of the ancient spa. Starting in 2020, funded by the municipality, archaeologists unearthed a large marble pool. It was decorated with fountains and altars to the god Apollo, his son Asclepius, and his daughter Hygieia, the root of the word hygiene. This site, says Salerno, was not for recreation. The pool was a sacred place. Only the religious custodians could bathe there. Sick people came to the sanctuary, Salerno adds, in the hopes of being cured and would offer gifts to the gods. It was a place of suffering and, he says, it was a place of hope. The first finds were coins and small votive offerings representing body parts in need of healing, ears, feet, torsos, and the like. 
Then, this past September and October, the team of archaeologists found two dozen bronze statues, some a meter high, perfectly preserved by the mud and water at the bottom of the large pool. They include a sleeping adolescent male lying next to one of the goddess of health Hygieia with a snake wrapped around her arms. Archaeologist Emanuele Mariotti oversees the excavation site. He says finding so many objects in their original location provides a unique historical context. So this is not only the, the discovery of the statues and small and big bronze and coins and everything and the architecture. Everything must be in the right place with the right things around. This is the context. The context could tell us the real history and all the history about this place. The new discoveries also shed light on what the Italian Culture Ministry describes as a unique multicultural and multilingual haven of peace between Etruscans and Romans at a time when the rivals were mostly at war. And scholars, says Mariotti, could rewrite the history of the transition from the Etruscan civilization to the Roman Empire. We can describe all the life day by day here through four or five centuries. So this is incredible. But for all the new information coming out of the San Casciano Sanctuary, there's one big mystery. Why didn't the Christians destroy this or convert it into a church like they did with so many other pagan temples? Around the year 500 A.D., the sanctuary was dismantled piece by piece. The statues were laid to rest at the bottom of the big pool, covered and sealed with columns and large slabs of marble. The burial of a civilization, says Mariotti, performed with pietas, the Latin word for respect and family devotion. Maybe the pagans did this, not the Christians, to protect their culture and their religion. We are not sure about, but probably is this. Excavation at the sanctuary will resume in the spring, and the statues, now being studied in a restoration institute, will eventually be displayed in a new museum to be built here. Silvia Poggioli, NPR News, San Casciano dei Bagni. Listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate and Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum. Online.merrimack.edu. It's important for me to be a WBUR member because it doesn't seem right that I would be getting all of this information, all of this news, and find joy in some of the other programs if I wasn't paying for it and I wasn't supporting it. It's a nice opportunity to participate in the programming and the ideas that the station promotes. I think we all get to say something with our money, even if we give modest amounts. With that money, we make something happen. Your modest monthly gift will make a meaningful difference. Give monthly at WBUR.org. 
and this is 90.9 WBUR, and one of the listeners you just heard made a very important point that, uh, in a sense, what we're doing is giving you a chance to say something with your money, and what we're doing right now is letting you say it even more loudly and clearly, because a triple match is now in effect. And what that means is, let's say you've decided you're going to give $100 for your year-end contribution, automatically WBUR gets $300 out of your $100 contribution. That's because some members of our Murrah Society gave their money to triple your support right now. This is in effect for the next 15 minutes or so. So please make your contribution now. We really appreciate it. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And, you know, Sharon, I actually got a lot from that listener testimonial, too. I think Mm -hmm. the first uh, person told us about how I feel like you know, I listen to WBUR so much that I feel like I need to contribute to help sustain that and help keep it strong. That was me for a long time, mm-hmm. too. I uh, I am a public broadcasting nerd. I am always <laughs> listening to or watching public broadcasting. And, you know, it means a lot to me in my life. I end up learning so much <laughs> every mm-hmm. single day, whether it's, um, you know, through uh, programs on the weekends like, um, you know, the TED Radio Hour, which is early on Saturdays, but also what we get here in Weekend Edition. We just heard Sylvia Pajoli, who is in, uh, she's our reliable correspondent for NPR in Italy. There's so much that goes into making these stories happen into stories that you end up enjoying and learning so much from. So please consider sustaining that, helping to support that. You can go to WBUR.org. Please consider giving five, ten dollars a month or even a hundred, a thousand dollars one time gift or monthly. It's up to you and what can fit in your budget. Again, you can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Lakshmi Singh from NPR. It has been a long year full of major news stories. The Supreme Court has eliminated the constitutional right to an abortion. The January 6th committee has begun to lay out what it has learned about this morning as Ukrainians face down the reality of a Russian invasion. Britain's longest serving monarch has died at the age of 96. But there were also stories of resilience, discovery, and hope. The CDC has now signed off on COVID-19 vaccinations for infants, toddlers. The James Webb Telescope caught those images of ancient history, billions of Only one major theater out of nearly 500 across the country has gone out of business. Humanity has changed the orbit of a planetary body. The NPR network is here for you, and it takes all of us to make this coverage possible. Donate to the station today, and thank you. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And a triple match is in effect. Uh, If that doesn't really mean anything to you, we'll explain it. What it means is no matter what you give, its impact will be tripled. So if you can give $100, WBUR winds up with $300. If you can give $1,000, it turns into $3,000. If you can give $15 a month, that will be tripled as well. 
The way you get this started is to call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And I really do love when we can talk about matches uh, mm-hmm. during our pitch breaks because it's it's such a, a call to action, I feel like, uh, right? It's it's a time when your money can really go farther. If you're thinking, what can my uh, contribution actually mean in the grand scheme of things, it can mean a lot just generally. But when we have triple matches like this, it can go so, so much farther. So again, uh, $100 turns into $300. $1,000, if that fits your budget, turns into $3,000. So you can go to WBUR.org if you want to get in on this. And that's just till the end of the hour. So we're giving you a little bit of a deadline pressure here, which we all know and love (laughs) here at WBUR. Um, Or you can give us a call at 1-800-909. And, you know, if you're one of those people, not that we know anybody like this who sometimes procrastinates, um, and maybe you had meant to already make your contribution, you know, during the past week, it had been on your mind, and the week just kind of got ahead of you, and you just didn't make it happen, this would be the perfect opportunity because you can take advantage of the triple match. We're not trying to reward you for procrastinating. However, uh, the option is here. You have a triple match in effect, 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org, pledge whatever amount works for you, uh, and that amount will be tripled. And when you think about it, um, think about how you know, much you value what you get here on WBUR. You're listening on a Saturday morning. Think about what you value on Saturday mornings, whether it's the TED Radio Hour, Weekend Edition, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, that's coming up at 10, all of them and more. Put a value on that, make a phone call or go to the web. 1-800-909-9287 wbur.org to take advantage of the triple match now and thank you so much as far as sean tan is concerned the idea of needing to belong to something can be overrated tan is an artist and writer whose work has earned a cult following he's best known for his graphic novel the arrival and the academy award-winning short film the lost thing npr's elizabeth blair spoke with tan about his new book creature a collection of his art that spans nearly 25 years sean tan's creatures are made of a little bit of everything stuff from nature and your kitchen a toaster with horns a bird-like beast with one eye a mechanical-looking bug towing a giant strawberry. Some of them are fierce, but a lot of them are playful and cuddly. I've always been interested in the strange creature as a companion, not as an adversary or antagonist or a threat or, or something even scary and mysterious, but as the person sitting next to you. In Sean Tan's graphic novel, The Lost Thing, a boy walks on a beach collecting bottle caps. He sees a huge red creature, like a metal pot with crab claws. Nobody else seems to even notice it, but the boy is curious. It turned out to be really friendly, and I played with the thing for most of the afternoon. The book was turned into a short film narrated by Australian actor Tim Minchpin. As the hours slouched by, it seemed less and less likely that anyone was coming to take the thing home. Soon there was no denying the unhappy truth. 
it was lost. The boy tries to help the lost thing find its home. The question for me was always, why is he engaging with this creature? Why is he so worried about where it belongs? And where does that question of belonging lead him? I decided to hide the thing in our back shed, at least until I could figure out what to do next. I mean, I couldn't just leave it wandering the streets. Tan's new collection includes a lot of the original sketches from The Lost Thing. It was his first book. At the time, he was a freelance illustrator, but wanted to do his own work. It kind of tapped into something I was feeling at the time in my mid-twenties, a sense of wanting to be creative but not quite sure where I belonged and what the meaning of my work was. And the story ended up being about all those things, about what do you do with meaningless work and is that okay? And I've, I've come to realise it is okay. <laughs> I've made a career out of it. Tan doesn't think his creatures are meaningless anymore. Just the opposite. He says he's figured out something serious to say with them. Eventually, the boy in The Lost Thing understands that the creature might not belong anywhere, and that's okay. When someone says that in order to belong, you need to be this sort of thing or you need to fulfil these certain requirements, well, it's, it's going down a very bad road, and you see that happening all over the world, and it also is the basis for a lot of needless disagreement between people. Tan's graphic novel, The Arrival, is also about belonging and dislocation. It follows a man emigrating to a country that has both humans and creatures. I'm interested in what you do when you encounter something that's really, really strange and unfamiliar, and how we respond to that, whether it's with fear of evasion or curiosity and maybe even love is, is really quite telling. Sean Tan's new collection is called Creature, Paintings, Drawings and Reflections. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Holiday Pops, helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops, now through December 24th, HolidayPops.org. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's independent journalism is essential to our democracy. Listener support is what keeps WBUR independent. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And what could make giving even more special? A triple match. That's right. A triple match is in effect for about the next almost four minutes. That means you need to take action right now to take advantage of this triple match. Here's what this means. 
Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Now, some members of our Murrow Society have already given their money to triple your support. So when you go to WBUR.org or you call 1-800-909-9287, if you give $100, to support the journalism here on WBUR, that turns into $300 for WBUR. If you are in a position to be able to give $1,000 for an end of, uh, $1,000 for an end of year gift, that turns into $3,000. You can do the math on whatever amount feels right for you. We've already done the important part of the match, which is uh, math, which is this triple match is in effect. 1-800-909-9287. And again, don't mean to sound bossy, but you really don't have any time and you kind of have to do this right now. Uh, WBUR.org is also where you can give your generous gift and the generosity will be tripled. That's right. If you are waiting for a sign to give, <laughs> uh, I feel like this triple match is kind of your sign. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a really great time to get in on really making the most of, you know, what your contribution can do. Um, and your contribution can help us do so many wonderful things on the air here. Like, I just love these artist profiles mm. like we just heard in this last segment of Weekend Edition. It, talking about things like, uh, you know, what happens when you encounter something you're unfamiliar with with, kind of a universal topic, but something we all kind of need to hear and be reminded of. And these productions take people. It takes, uh, you know, it takes investment to keep this programming strong. So please consider going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287. You can have your contribution go that much farther to um, three times farther, rather, <laughs> to mm. to support these kinds of stories that you so enjoy and rely on every uh, every weekend and every day, really. That's right. And, you know, you think about how often you have conversations in which you say, oh, you know, like I was listening to on WBUR. Did you hear that thing about <laughs> if, if if for every time you say that you could <laughs> you you could uh, add that together, stir that together and realize WBUR brings value to your life. You count on it. You rely on it. And so it's the end of the year. We're counting on you for your tax deductible contribution and the triple matches in effect for just another minute. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Make your contribution now, your tax-deductible contribution. The impact will be tripled. If you can give $100 right now, that turns into $300 for WBUR. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And thank you. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.